Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. We have a great interactive class coming up for you tonight. The connections between ancient Egypt and Ireland. Sounds like a bizarre connection, but it, in fact, does exist. So it's a uh, this was fascinating research to do. I had a uh, great time with this. Uh, Nicole actually very recently had forwarded me a couple of videos about this connection. And uh, during the summer, our uh, one of our members here for the Connected Universe portal and Celine had afforded me some information about uh, Egypt and in Ireland, kind of the question, okay, what is the deal here between this connection? And, uh, and somewhere along the way, there was an article that popped up in my feed about DNA between uh Egypt and Ireland. And so it's like, okay, this is a thing they have to address. We're going to do it. But it took me a little bit of time to get things together here because this is something I hadn't really researched before. This is even new to me. So I'm going to present my findings here this evening. And uh, yeah, great to see people down there in in the chat. Uh, Bill Prack is in the house now, Sarah Yusuf as well. Uh, all right. Great to see uh, you all down there. So we'll get to the uh, class question that I had here uh, before the uh, before the before the class, <laughs> which was which two ancient civilizations would you be interested in discovering new connections together? So the idea that, you know, two random ancient civilizations that you wouldn't normally think have connections together, but yet do kind of like what we're talking about here this evening between Egypt and Ireland. And Tom McNicholas put down there the Roman Empire and the Aztec civilization. Yeah, that does seem like a bit of a, of a stretch. But what's interesting is and Adam Tillery, unfortunately, is not currently a member of the Connected Universe, uh, which, Adam, if you listen to this podcast later, come on out. We would love to have you here. Uh, but he's familiar with the show The Curse of Oak Island, which I watch uh, extensively as well. And they have found artifacts and connections from Oak Island to Rome and from Oak Island to Mesoamerica, where the Aztec empire would have been. So there's a connection there, very, very tenuous to the two at Oak Island. So, but maybe there are some deeper connections there that we haven't yet discovered. I believe all these different cultures are connected anyway, some way, shape, or form, but to find that evidence is, is quite difficult. So all of this, however, does play into a couple of different things that we have going on. One is the tour to Ireland that we have going on next year through Mysterious Adventures Tours. I'm uh, heading that up on you know, a quote-unquote special guest. Uh, we do have a specific guide out there that we will be using, and it is a eight-day trip. July 1st through the 9th, there are a few spots still left, so check that out, MysteriousAdventuresTours.com. And, of course, next week, Thursday, December 16th at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern, we are doing a special virtual tour of Ireland. Virtual Tours of Ireland is the uh, organization that's putting that on. There's a uh, Facebook event that is out there. I'll go ahead. And after the class here, I'll go ahead and post that into the uh, the Connected Universe group 
that uh, the live viewers here are a part of. I'll also go ahead and put it out there, connecttheuniverseportal.com and the Connecting the Universe pages so that uh, others from the public have that as well because it is a public free event. It's an hour-long virtual tour. Uh, come join us for that. And for those of us that are listening to us later on a number of the different platforms, including the syndicated uh, radio shows, you can catch this live Connecting the Universe every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time through the Connected Universe portal. It's a free 30-day uh, trial. Come check it out. You can ask your questions in the class, get the full video presentation and all of that wonderful stuff. Because Right now, you're going to be listening to it, which is fine, but you won't see all the fantastic uh, photos and, like I said, the video presentation and all that. So, all right, let's go ahead and get into this because there is actually... A lot of material to cover here. Uh, again, this was even a bit new to me. You know, even though we have the tour for Ireland all set up, I was in Egypt this past June, been researching a lot of material for a number of years, and I wasn't really familiar with this connection, but here it is. All right. Ireland and Egypt. There are a number of different things that uh, that connect these two, and we're going to kind of work our way back little by little and i say little by little but we're taking a big jump to start that's a good 1200 years into the past and that entails this object here which in 2006 it was discovered in a peat bog it's an ancient book it was found in fat and more of counting tipperary made of papyrus with an egyptian style leather cover so just for starters, how close is to the how close is this to where we're going to be this coming summer, July? Well, Connie Tipperary is where uh, Rocket Cashel is and Kahir Castle, both of which we're going to. So we won't be going to the peat bog; it's actually private property. Uh, but they were doing some some digging there, uh, basically peat uh, moss farming, and I, I'm not sure exactly what that's used for. I'm not an agriculturalist, but. Uh, in the digging, in the excavations that had been done there, they discovered this book, which actually about six years beforehand, there was a leather satchel there found as well. And many people believe that the two are, are connected and maybe even the satchel held this book uh, because of, you know, the, you know, the, the type of, um, what do I want to say here? because of the type of situation that's involved. And we'll, we'll get into that here. So what is this thing? So this is actually a, uh, what they call a Psalter. So it's basically a book of Psalms. Here it is when they found it in the mud. And then when they cleaned it up a little bit, uh, you can see the writing here on the pages. It's actually in Latin. Uh, the dating of this book, like I said, this dates back about 1,200 years. So it was written in about 800 AD. Again, it's a collection of Psalms, and only about 15% is actually readable. I'll go ahead and throw, throw up a page here. This is most of, well, two pages that they were able to retrieve from it. But you can see from this other photo here that it's in, uh, you know, it's in pretty bad shape. So, okay, so this thing, it's written on papyrus. It has 
a Egyptian style leather cover. How did and it is written in Latin? So how did something that has connections to Egypt written in Latin uh, get out here to to Ireland? Um, we'll get into that in a second here. Uh, what's interesting, though, because I said that there's a situation here with the uh, with the actual book itself and the satchel that it may have been in. So Boggs at that time, again, we're talking 800 AD, uh, were used often by Irish monks as hiding places for valuable uh, for valuables for from uh, the Viking raids that were going on at the time. So. You know, Vikings would come into a village, they'd be raiding it. The monks want to preserve their history, their legacy, and so they would hide it in the bog. That may sound crazy, but there's actually some science behind this, even though they probably didn't realize what it was. But they knew enough that the bog would actually preserve it. So what happens is, uh, within the bog, it has low oxygen con conditions. Uh, so the oxygen is not getting down into there to basically break down the uh, you know the papyrus and, and the leather and all that. There's also that type of moss that's there. You can kind of see on the edges of the, the photo here, the moss. Uh, it's sphagnum moss. And it's a specific type of moss that creates an environment that's almost impervious to rot. Uh, Sounds kind of crazy, but it's true. So you can actually hide things in this bog and they're going to be relatively okay. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, much of that text is gone and is missing, you know, because it is, you know, muddy conditions. So it's almost kind of like two forces battling each other. Part of it wants to break it down. Another part wants to preserve it. The leather was at least preserved pretty well. And they got 15% of the text, which isn't too bad considering it's been over a thousand years. So what's the connection to Egypt here? How did this book get there? Well, this connection, at least this one that we're talking about now, goes back to the Coptic church. So what's the Coptic church? Basically, these are your Egyptian Christians. So Egyptian or a Christian church that uh, was developed in Egypt and still exists to this day. So we actually, uh, when we were out in Egypt this past June, we got to visit one of these, and it's a Coptic cave church. Uh, really, really beautiful. And uh, they have a very, very rich history. They actually carved this church out of the rock uh, here you see some of the photos of the uh, the pulpit area. You know they have this uh, those those windows that are back there actually are out of the cliff. So when you look through there, you, you're looking like hundreds of feet below, and you're overlooking the city of Cairo. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. So this is kind of on the outskirts of Cairo. And then they have all these uh, amazing sculptures here. These are done by a, a Polish uh, sculptor. So I see you guys have some comments in here. We'll get to uh, uh, what you're commenting here. Yes, Tom, you are able to comment now. 
So when you're asking, do you think they really want to preserve the book? Well, if they're being raided, yeah, that would be something that they would want to preserve. And maybe whoever put it there couldn't get back to it. You know, uh, we don't know what may have happened. If it was a raid, you know, kind of speculation. Uh, but apparently that was a practice back then that if the town was being raided, they would hide things in the bog. And it could be that, you know, the person that hit it, that particular monk, maybe he got killed during the raid. Maybe when he went back to go to try to find it, he couldn't. So, um, yeah, and then the satchel is that speculation too, whether or not the two were connected. They were, they were around the same time. But anything could have been in the satchel and that book may not have been in one. And, but, you know, only 300 feet apart and things shift over time. So, uh, and then Sarah's asking, connections be a continental drift? Well, we kind of covered that the other week, but uh, if we have time, then uh, we can get back to that. So the method they use for dating was there's going to be uh, carbon 14 dating for that. Uh, you know, you you have all kinds of organics there. So, so the Coptic church is actually quite important. So uh, you had the cops that were basically proselytizing there in, uh, in Ireland, developing churches and connecting there with the, uh, with the Christians, with the monks there in Ireland. It's a, it's a very interesting connection, but what we can also attribute to the cops is they have some credit here with the Rosetta Stone. So we're not going to spend too much time on this. We, we could spend an entire class on the Rosetta Stone, but they were very instrumental in helping to decipher this and bring us the hieroglyphs today. You know, we, without them, we would, we would not have translated this. So very, very quickly, when you look at the Rosetta Stone, you see the top there is, those are the hieroglyphs. The next layer is the Modic. What the Modic was, was basically like the daily usage Egyptian script. Uh, it's kind of like their everyday language, you know, kind of their shorthand, basically like our printing uh, sort of thing. And then below is Greek. So when they found the Rosetta Stone, they could read the Greek, but they weren't sure what was going on with the hieroglyphs. That was a that was a dead language for a long, long time. Uh, so to give you some ideas here uh, of of what happened, just some brief history. Uh, both the hieroglyphic language and demonic began to disappear around the third century AD. Uh, the last hieroglyphic text that was actually written, that at least we know of, was at the Temple of Isis in Philae in AD 394. We did visit that in June as well. And the last demonic text was inscribed there as well, 452 AD. So not even 60 years between the two, you have your last hieroglyphic and last demotic there. And so, again, those are the top two on the Rosetta Stone. So those were lost to us over time. Uh, in 642, you had the Arab conquest of Egypt, which 
further, which all that was further lost. Uh, you, there, there may be, there may be other pieces out there that we don't know of yet that we haven't discovered. The Rosetta Stone itself was actually used as building material. You know, it, it's not like it was just sitting out there in a temple somewhere. Uh, it, it had been repurposed. And unfortunately, you find that with a lot of these uh, these pieces of ancient history that we just kind of stumble across. Like everything with Akhenaten uh, back in Egypt, we had we had no idea about Akhenaten until there was some restoration work. We found inside of stone columns that it was used his his inscriptions and information about him was used as filler for these different columns. So we see this happen where. Uh, things that we deem important now, people that came along after the fact just were like, yeah, we're going to use it for you know, filler. We're going to use it for building material. All the beautiful limestone off of the Great Pyramid, you can still find it today. It was used for temples throughout Cairo, but you no longer see it on the uh, the pyramid, of course, unfortunately. But... Uh, Okay, so with the Rosetta Stone, the uh, the person who really broke it, I had two competing guys here: John Francois, uh, Jean Francois Champollion, and Thomas Young. This is Champollion here. It's almost kind of like the space race: who's going to be the first one to uh, break the the Rosetta Stone? Uh, and really, it. They both get some credit, but Champollion is really uh, the main guy that that broke it. And what really helped him was the Coptic language. So he he basically went on to identify the meanings of most of the phonetic hieroglyphs, and he established much of the grammar and vocabulary of of ancient Egyptian. While Thomas Young largely deciphered the Demotic uh, using the Rosetta Stone. So they both they both get some credit to the uh, to the Rosetta Stone, but it's mainly Champollion because the Coptic language, what that is, is basically a version of the ancient Egyptian language. Now they wrote it out differently, but the pronunciations were essentially, they weren't identical. It's never going to be precisely identical. Um, the way things are pronounced, it's it's like we believe this is the way it was pronounced. Um, you know, everything lines up between the Coptic language and the Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, as far as like the meaning. You know, and we know most of it. But the way it's pronounced, it's like, you know, I took some courses in hieroglyphs uh, before I went to Egypt. And even the instructors are like, well, this is the way we believe it was pronounced. Uh, you know, ancient, the ancient Egyptian language didn't have vowels. So they're like, you know, these are kind of the letters that are going together. This is the way it's supposed to kind of be pronounced. And you're talking about a language that would have been developed over thousands of years. So it's going to be a bit different. You know, you take our, you know, our old English from you know, several hundred years ago. You know, we're talking, okay, in uh, Ireland there, uh, in 800 AD, 
you know, you think about people that are speaking, well, they would have spoken Gaelic in, in Ireland, but you take the UK at that time, the English that would have been around there at that time. You, if you were to go back then and try to speak English to those guys, they're not going to understand you and you're not going to understand them because the dialect changed over the years. Another good example would be like the movie Stargate, which actually uses uh, Egyptian, uh, Egyptian, the, the way uh, James Spader's character is trying to talk to them doesn't come out right it's not until he gets down into the uh into the written record room or it wasn't really tombs it was just kind of passages with written records and he's talking to the girl and discovers that you know it's it's the same words but it's pronounced a little differently and so that may be what we're we're dealing with but coptic is what was used to uh help translate uh the the rosetta stone so i just wanted to hit that real quick which maybe that wasn't real quick, but uh, just to give you some background of the importance of the the Coptics and the Coptic Christians. So let's keep going here because there are other connections here between Ireland and Egypt in some of the uh, the more interesting tales. I mean, these are great artifacts we're finding from 800 A.D., hope to find some more there may be more out there they do find in these bogs uh, some interesting interesting artifacts uh, but there are stories about visits to ireland by by the seven monks of egypt and what they called the desert fathers or the desert monks uh, these are these are monks that came from egypt and visited ireland long long ago so we're going to talk about a individual named Angus the Coldy. So where a lot of this information comes from, um, comes from Archdale King. He was a liturgical historian. And he noted that the links between Celtic Ireland and Coptic Egypt uh, even took place before the Muslim conquest of 640 AD. So that this connection was established, you know, even more than than 1200 years ago which was what we were talking about with that psalter that was found so there's also uh we're talking about different psalters uh written by angus the coldy a text called psalter naran this is an anthology of biblical poems that contains a book of adam and eve which is interesting. So it's like a, it, it's really almost like a lost text of the Old Testament, you know, and the, it's always interesting when we find these, uh, these lost stories or lost scriptures and, and lost texts, because, you know, we know that the, the Bible that we have today is incomplete, that, you know, the Council of Nicaea tore out a lot. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, much of that has been lost to time. But you know, here it is, this kind of almost lost book of, of Adam and Eve. It's composed in Egypt in the 5th or 6th century, century. But what's interesting is that this was only recorded in, in Ireland. So these, basically these desert monks came to Ireland with, you know, works there from Egypt. And they shared it with the Irish. And then we don't know really what happened. And they were there. Um, but 
then they kind of disappear to time as well. And this work only remains there in Ireland. So it's very, very mysterious. It's, it's almost kind of cryptic as to, uh, as to what happened to these guys. So continuing on with, uh, with Angus. So, okay. So Angus wrote this stuff, right? So, um, tell us some more, Mike. So he did, he wrote a lot. Um, So, give you a piece of what he wrote. This is from, you see the, the book up here on the screen, The Martyrology of Angus the Coldy, uh, Philair, or Philair, however it's pronounced. Uh, but he wrote part of this in 799 AD, where he specifically says, uh, talks about the seven Egyptian monks in Desert Uliag. Again, I'm not sure if that's how I'm pronouncing the Uliag part. Desert is correct. It says, I invoke unto my aid through Jesus Christ. So he's calling upon the monks in conjunction with Jesus. So I'm not sure how heretical that may have been in the day, <laughs> but apparently it was it was okay in Ireland. So wh what's interesting is the use of the word desert. You actually see this quite a bit. Uh, around in, in Ireland, the actual term desert for a number of different places. So this Desert Uliag is now Dun Desert, which is in County Atrum near Belfast. It's actually right down the road from the Belfast International Airport. Uh, Angus is the author, again, of the earliest, earliest Irish martyrology. Again, it's called the Philir. And give you a little background on him. He was born of a, of a kingly Ulster family, which was a town named Ulster right down the road too. He was educated at the monastery of Clonach. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, he lived as a hermit in Desert Baal and later at Desert Enos. So again, you're seeing this repeated use of the word desert for these locations throughout Ireland. It's, it's there is there a reverence for these desert monks that came out of Egypt and, uh, and shared their beliefs and shared their writings with them? So it's these monks that are believed that this, we'll go back to it here, this Psalter that was found, this leather-bound book that was discovered in the mud that's made out of leather from Egypt, the covers, leather from Egypt, and the uh, pages are made out of papyrus. It is believed that this came from these desert monks. And again, written in Latin, because that was the, uh, the church at that time. Everything was being written in Latin. So you're getting this whole mishmash of these different cultures from across that part of the world, Egypt, Rome, Ireland, yet they're all connected. It's really, really interesting. So, all right, that's, that's again, 1,200 years ago. Some of it goes back before 600 AD. Let's go back a little bit further because these connections continue to go further and further back. 
So some people may recognize this. This is the mound of hostages at Terra in Ireland. And what's significant about this, well, there's a lot that's significant about this mound and, and Terra in general, because there, there is a lot going on at Terra, which we're not going to get into all of that. And uh, let's see, Sarah had a question here. Uh, was it a form of cuneiform? Um, no, it wouldn't have been a form of cuneiform. Cuneiform would have been the ancient Mesopotamian language. But yes, you are right. Considering it was Latin and leather, owner must have been educated and rich. Yeah, um, we'll get into the idea of rich people from Ireland or rich people from Egypt coming into Ireland. And really, money was always with the church back then anyways. I mean, some of those monks may not have been rich, rich, but the money generally stayed with the church. So they would have been the ones with the, with the items, you know, with, you know, the, the special, the special books, you know, books were a premium back then, but they were written by the monks at that point. But these apparently were written by the desert monks. So, all right, Mound of Hostages. So our story here starts in 1955 with archaeologist Dr. Sean O. Riordan. Uh, he was a uh, professor at Trinity College, and what he discovered here, this is the middle of the archaeological dig, where they're, they're digging down to the, uh, this is a burial mound. And he found there the skeletal remains of a young boy about 15 years old carbon dated to around 1350 bc with this boy was a necklace made of faience beads matching the design and manufacture of egyptian beads there's also a collar there that matched the collar laid around the neck of tutankhamun although i couldn't find that collar so these here are the beads and you can see it's uh put together like a necklace some interesting things about the uh the tomb itself is that the passage has a solar alignment with the cross quarter days so this is february 4th november 8th usually when things have a solar alignment we usually see them as something like a solstice or an equinox or something like that this one's a little bit a little bit interesting where it's a, a cross course so basically between these points so instead of uh basically a cross quarter you know that we would have had in november 8th would have been between the september the fall equinox and then the winter solstice so a little bit different and then of course the uh the same between the uh, winter solstice and then uh the spring equinox is is the other one so they call that cross quarter so a little bit different uh what's also interesting is that the mound is on you usually see this it's on an older structure and we don't really know what specifically that older structure would have been used for except that it was dug out of the actual bedrock uh, so it dates back even further than the 1350 bc 
but this particular boy that was discovered there uh, in the beads, this is what Riordan says specifically about the beads. Uh, he says, the Terra beads are not made of true faience, which normally has an external colored glaze, but of a well-known variety of Eastern Mediterranean synthetic material in which powder blue glass or glaze has been mixed with quartz grains, in which, after molding, has been fired. Such hard glassy faience or variant E of the material has been described by A. Lucas, Ancient Egyptian Materials and Industries, 1948, is well known in Egypt. Uh, he also dates the beads to uh, about 1400 BC by comparison with similar examples from Abydos in Egypt. This is from O'Riordan's paper, A Burial with Faience Beads at Terra from 1956. So that's those are actually his specific words from back then uh, and in the research that, that he had done. So what he's saying here is that the the beads that were discovered are basically commiserate with that of Eastern Mediterranean. There are some people who hold out and say, well, there's a possibility it could also be from Syria. Uh, but the greater percentage is that it would be from Egypt, and there have been similar beads found uh, near Abydos. Abydos is the temple that has the, uh, you know, what we call... Uh, like the helicopter and the airplane and all that uh, up on the the one lintel near the ceiling in the temple. Uh, that's Abydos. Not that they found those hieroglyphs there or anything like that, but basically this boy had some sort of connection back to, to Egypt, and he was buried there. Now, we're going to take it a step further, and we're going to talk about uh, this stone. This is the stone of destiny or Leah fail. There's some controversy to it uh, because the, the Scottish believe they have the real stone of destiny. So there's debate, uh, but it seems like more people believe that this is the quote unquote true stone of destiny. You can see it kind of looks like an obelisk. What, what exactly is this thing? So this was basically a coronation stone for high kings of Ireland. It was actually once located outside the Mound of Hostages, but it was moved in 1824 to commemorate the Battle of Terra, and it now marks a mass grave of 400 united Irishmen. So they moved it from one burial mound here to another burial mound there. Go figure that. So there are a couple of different legends surrounding this. One of them states that the stone was brought in antiquity by the semi-divine race known as Tuatha de Danann. Again, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So these people had traveled to the Northern Isles where they had learned many skills in magics in four different cities that were there in these Northern Isles. And from there, they traveled to Ireland, bringing with them a treasure from each city. And from the one city, Phalias, came this stone, the Leophael, or the Stone of Destiny. Now, there's additional legends to this. So there's the legend of Scotia, or Scota. I'm sorry, there, there are two sisters, Scotia and Scota. 
uh, Skoda was an Egyptian princess who fled from Egypt with a large group of followers and arrived in Ireland in 1700 BC. So this was prior to the boy with the beads. It's believed that Skoda, uh, whose descendants are said to have become the high kings of Ireland, was killed in battle by the Tuatha de Danann, who are the ones that have, were supposed to have brought the stone. So you see all these interesting connections here. So the Tuatha de Danann, they bring the stone down uh, to Ireland, set it up there. You have Skoda, who's supposed to be a uh, princess, daughter of the pharaoh of Egypt, that ends up there in Ireland. They do battle. She's killed there. But this stone becomes the the stone for the high kings of Egypt, which are supposed to, according to the legend, be descended from her. What's also interesting about her is that Scotland's supposed to be named for her. So there are, again, these Scottish connections as well. Like I said, they believe that they have uh, the stone of destiny because she was very uh, obviously entwined with, with their legacy as well. So it's hard to know precisely what exactly happened, but there is decidedly a connection between Egypt and Ireland. The people certainly traveled from Egypt to Ireland. They left artifacts there in the form of, we see in the form of beads, we see in the form of these books that were left there, uh, certainly some stories. You know, the stone, you know, it's, when you look at it, I mean, it is in the shape of an obelisk. It's nowhere near as tall as the, the obelisks in, in Egypt. But it does make you wonder, is there some sort of influence from Egypt to Ireland here that you know, we're going to create this, this stone like this? Now, there are standing stones all over Ireland, in the UK, Scotland, uh, England. Uh, they have several of them. It's just this one looks like kind of that pencil shape. Uh, of the uh of the stone obelisks of egypt so it, but there's no writing on it so uh and it's it's quite smaller so it's also interesting since we did talk about language a little bit is skoda go back to skoda here real quick uh and these couple of names are going to rattle off are uh are babylonian Skoda and Nuil's son, Goedo, uh, are said to have created the Gaelic language by combining the best features of the 72 language then in existence. So, not sure if there's much truth to that. Um, Goedo is said to have been extremely interested in the Tower of Babel, coming from Babylon, if he was supposed to be Babylonian. Uh, you know, so he had an interest there in creating languages and created, along with Skoda, Gaelic. So that's that's our legend for where the uh, Gaelic language comes from. Um, and Tom letting us know that uh, his family comes from Northern Ireland. 
that's uh, that's absolutely fantastic. I didn't know that, Tom. Now, when we were talking about um, Angus the Coldy, that area there, that would have been Northern Ireland. So interesting, interesting connection that Tom has there. So 15 miles down the road from Terra is a site that we have talked about several times before. Uh, and that is Newgrange. What, we're going to talk a little bit uh, in some different terms this evening about Newgrange. So for those that aren't familiar, that are listening later, or uh, for those in our current chat, <laughs> Connecting the Universe here, uh, the Connected Universe portal. Uh, so this is Newgrange, a Neolithic mound constructed about 5,200 years ago, or 3,200 B.C., What's interesting is archaeologists have dubbed it a passage tomb, while others, including New Grange's official site, have dubbed it an ancient temple based on its astrological, spiritual, and ceremonial importance. So it's it's kind of both because, you know, there obviously are tombs there, um, but given the astronomical alignments and the ceremonies that were performed there and all that, um, it is also a temple, but you know that's not too different from you know some of our old, or older cathedrals around Europe where you see things like, um, you know, they have the crypts under the cathedral and they have uh, different saints that are entombed there and, and what have you. You know, it's it's a place of worship, and they have bodies there too. So, kind of the same thing with Newgrange, and this is why the the site is called it a. This is a temple. Uh, but you have this fantastic astronomical alignment during the winter solstice. Uh, it is extremely popular to tr you know to try to get in there to witness this event on the winter solstice. You actually have to submit to a lottery. You put yourself into a lottery system and hope your number gets picked, and then you can go view this alignment on the winter solstice which is supposed to be really phenomenal. Um, there are videos and photos and all that online that uh, you can go check out, of course. So what's, what's interesting, where we get our Egyptian, possible Egyptian connection here, uh, is DNA from a middle-aged man that was buried there in 3200 BC, uh, right around the middle of the mound. And his genes indicated that he had parents so closely related that they were likely brother and sister or parent and child, uh, which is pretty disturbing to think of. So this was actually from a paper that was published in the journal Nature just this past June 2020. Um, and they stated Matings like that are taboo pretty much universally with very few exceptions. Those exceptions include Egyptian pharaohs who are considered deities who needed to marry each other, royal siblings in Hawaii and the Incan Empire also known to marry, concentrating power in one family. Uh, article goes on to say, I believe we're seeing a similar social dynamic at play among colonialists or I'm sorry, colonists of Neolithic Ireland. Uh, and so it's, you know, we look at that and we're like, well, we, we saw that in Europe, right? You know, people in, the, in England, 
through other parts of Europe where they were intermarrying with the family, keep the, like the royal bloodline. Yeah, that but that was more uh, cousins. Cousins were encouraged to marry each other and keep you know the blood pure like that. But uh, brother, sister, father, daughter, you know, mother, son, sort of thing. No, <laughs> that you know that was that was taboo uh, for Europe. So that was that's why it's really interesting to see that here in Ireland and why they're relating it to Egypt. Because if you had this influx of uh, Egyptian culture in you know, some of their beliefs and ideas that filtered into Ireland, that that could have been an influence there even uh, with their political system to keep you know the bloodline pure and all that so that's a possible connection there between ireland and uh and egypt it's a tenuous one uh it because it causes speculation but you know where else would they have gotten that idea if it was completely out of the norm for their for their culture if, if it was something they did not typically do, why did they start doing it? You know, is there somebody who came along to influence them for that? Well, you know, some of the other ideas out there, Hawaii, the Incans, yeah, probably not. But Egypt, you know, we already see an Egyptian influence there at Ireland. So they could have been the ones to to offer that idea. So last 10 minutes here, of course, and uh, during Edge of the Rabbit Hole last night after we said goodbye to Richard Estep, and I, I mentioned tonight's class, uh, you know, Victoria was like, so you're going to talk about the the swirls again? Is that what the class is going to be about? Well, we have to talk about the swirls. But, you know, it wasn't the main focus, but it is a connection there. And so what I'm talking about, of course, on New Grange you see this interesting circular swirl pattern that we see all over the world. And I've mentioned this several, several times before uh, during Connecting the Universe in several of the videos that we have out there uh, on other platforms. This swirl pattern that you see all over the world. I'm not going to throw up all the photos from that I usually toss up there like... Uh, like I'll put Chaco Canyon up there and Sardinia and some other places. Newgrange is, is one where we see that all over the place. And then you also see it in ancient Egypt, that circular swirl pattern. Now, again, with a place like Chaco Canyon, it's believed that they were some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of portals. The, Petroglyphs were in relations to the star people. So were the stargates, were they portals? Uh, we see it at Sardinia. There are ideas that, you know, Sard Sardinia is descended from the Atlanteans. Um, there's also, you have the giant legends there in Sardinia. Well, again, looking at how so many different things are connected over time, there's there's certainly a connection here when you're looking at the same pattern between Ireland and, and Egypt, 
that there is a relation here. There is a similar influence in this type of artwork and a message that they are trying to relate. And what exactly is that? Is, is it, is it a clue into our ancient past? So if we look at the idea of Atlantis and not just the city, Atlantis was more than just a city. It was a, it was a culture that spread out across the world. Well, I wish I had included a map here as part of the uh, the slide presentation. But if Atlantis was supposed to be just beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which today would be the uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, if it was somewhere around there, well, you know, easy access. You know, you go straight east into the Mediterranean and, you know, hang a right start heading south a little bit, boom, you hit Egypt. Perfect, right there. Straight north of that, boom, you got Ireland in the UK. So, you know, easy access to each of those lands. You know, so this pattern that we're seeing in both Ireland and Egypt you know, I believe again, it is a connection back to back to the Atlantean culture. You know, I, I know people get a little frazzled when they hear the A word, <laughs> and I don't mean aliens. Although there could be a connection there as well, because when we start talking, because that swirl pattern, when we look at you know the ideas from Chaco Canyon, that they're talking portals and stargates i mean the same thing could be true for newgrange and uh for egypt as well that you know and at newgrange you know it's right outside of an astrically astronomically aligned temple you know were they using that alignment you know to travel through a portal to travel through a stargate even if it was just a state of consciousness that we're going to worship here and take ourselves to another level, another plane of existence, another state of consciousness. Well, the ancient Egyptians believed in those things too and, and going into altered states of consciousness. And you're seeing that same swirl pattern on their artwork. Now, later on, you start seeing the Stargate symbolism with, the uh, with the gate and the stars and you know several of those this could be an early form of that you know that could be you know the atlantean form and then as the egyptian culture developed they could have changed it into something else i mean there are people that even believe that atlantis like the city was there in egypt and was heliopolis it doesn't quite play into the idea of the city being outside the uh, pillars of Hercules. So I'm not quite on board with, with that particular theory, but you can certainly see these connections. So let me dive back into the chat here, see what you guys have going on. Um, so Tom saying swirling spiral symbolism of Celtic culture. Um, in some in some ways yes but 
you don't really see the connection between the Celts and say, you know, the Hopi tribe of, of the American Southwest. But in Ireland, sure. Uh, Sarah saying uh, could be a connection of trade. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to have those trade routes, you know, certainly uh, up and down the, uh, you know, the Eastern Atlantic there and then down into the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, that, you know, one of the connections uh, that, that we know of that is a written account was of a trade ship of 10 that came up out of Egypt to England. So there was certainly a trade route that was established there. Now could, this would have been around the time of, uh, of those desert monks, the desert fathers. Could those monks have hopped one of those trade ships heading up there? For sure. The, I guess the mystique is in that you don't find a whole lot of these accounts. You know, there's, okay, there's one account there of a trade ship. You don't really see too many other accounts of trade ships going from Egypt to uh, to the UK, but the, it was there. There was an established connection. And again, you had these monks that were going up there. Well, how were they getting there? Well, by, by ship seems to be uh, the best idea. Then you have the legend of Skoda, who fled Egypt, got on a ship, and, and went up there. So, yeah, that certainly would have been the, uh, the connection there. All right. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up for this evening. This was an interesting one because, again, this material was also a, a bit new to me in a lot of different areas. Uh, but it did connect with a number of different places that I had gone to in Egypt earlier this summer. And uh, we'll keep exploring this connection. You know, as we get closer to the Ireland trip next summer, of course, we have the virtual tour that's happening next week. Uh, be sure to check that out again, December 16th, 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, just check my social media for you know, the, uh, the actual link. Because right now, I think the link is just in the, uh, the actual Facebook event. Uh, so it's, it's being hosted by... Uh, Ireland virtual tours, and uh, and so I'll be there to kind of help co-host as well as Maria from Mysterious Adventures Tours. Uh, she's the one that's put this together, and is uh, Mysterious Adventures Tour is uh, you know who we're doing the Ireland tour through next summer. So be on the lookout for all that. Again, just uh, one more class next week. And then we are off for the rest of the year. So be sure to tune in to that. ConnectedUniversePortal.com for those that are listening in later on. Be sure to join us live uh, for one of these Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Just uh, sign up at ConnectedUniversePortal.com. 30-day free trial. Plenty more material out there about Egypt, shadow entities, uh, all kinds of articles. Uh, everybody else down in the chat, Sarah, Tom, Nicole, 
Somebody else is lurking out there. I think Bill Prack is still down there. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have a great evening. Till next time.